Any questions? It's just us. Say anything you want. Is, um, is Sada Shiva depicted in the iconography at all, besides Adhikacharya? That's, uh, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure if in art I have not seen some depiction of Mahadev Shiva worshipping Sankarshan, riding on a bull in Shiva Loka. I think I have. Or maybe I'm just remembering the descriptions in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, hmm? where Shiva comes riding in on his bull, and Gopukumar is there in Shiva Loka, and, and, um, and so forth. Um, and descriptions in the Bhagavatam of Shiva worshipping Sankarshan. Um, but you know, there very well may be s- South India somewhere, somewhere. Mm-hmm. Typically, in a, in Agodia, uh, Sampradaya, and in Godia, the uh, Godia Math of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur, the Gopishwar Lingam, it would be worshipped in many of his temples. A separate, that's not very good. In a separate place of. I don't think he needs this. I don't think we need that. It's not working very well. In a separate place from the main temple, like on the way in or something, there's a, the uh, lingam in it and glorification of Gopishwar is. Uh, Engaged in and mantra chanted and so forth. So that's more typical of the uh, form of Shiva that's respected, and I think it's it's, it's the most complementary and highest form of, uh, of Mahadev. But again, the descriptions there in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, and it's very possible that someone has put it to art. Um, you know, you've got Mahavishnu in his role as the creator and sleeping and glancing and universes emanating from him and so on and so forth. And um, this Mahavishnu is, is more personal, personable, uh, excuse me, um, um, what's the name? Shiva, Sadashiva. I mean, same, but in the form of Sadashiva, he's he's um, it's the form of Mahavishnu, Mahan Vishnu, Mahadev and Vishnu, but um, he appears more like Shiva, and um, he's more approachable, has some um, pastimes, and there are there are many Shaivites that are. I do have like a Shiva Bhakti, and I and I um, refer to the South for iconography because I think there are some in the South that have as their ideal entering into the Shiva Lok.
I don't know if they look at it as like, perhaps like a, you know, Amitabha Buddha world where you go and from there you merge into Brahman. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure. It may not be the case at all. They may just be Shiva Bhaktas and they want to enter into, into Shiva Loka. It's, it's an attainable destination and it's, it's beyond the, the modes of nature. Hmm. Um, so, that said, I mean, hand it to the, the, the Srimad Bhagavatam and to Sanatana Goswami for bringing it out. Maybe the Shaivites do. I don't know. Those, those, those that, that group does. How they would look at it in relation to everything else, I don't think they'd ha- even have that perspective because that you get from Bhagavatam, this like, as I was saying the other night, this pluralistic, uh, in, 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 inclusive. It, it's not exactly like you have the you have you have exclusivity, you have inclusivity, then you have pluralism, <laughs> in one sense. The exclusivity is we're the only one, the only way. Inclusivity, everyone's included in it, but yours is the best within it. Pluralism, it's like I guess you'd say it's just everything's all all equal perspective. So. We're more inclusive, 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 inclusivistic. Bhagavatam. Um, so, yeah, and that's where you'll find the most information about that in Brihad Bhagavatamrita. It's a nice section. Um, and the person of the Sadashiva is is brought out there, approachable. Gopal Kumar met with him, had a conversation. <clears throat> what else? Um, in this chapter of separate preface, where you uh, describe uh, uh, cyclical time, like. Uh, I totally get how to explain to someone how it uh, helps understanding uh, journey of the soul, but with regard to uh, explaining um, what's this term like um, this like constant regression thing with regards to material world, I'm not sure how it works. Like uh, like taking this most famous example of chicken and egg, what was first. It should be either like there was always chicken and egg, but archaeology would say no, or well, chicken and egg are equal. infinite regress is what you're talking about. There's no infinite regress in the <coughs> cyclical conception of uh, of time with uh, within Hinduism. But um, the other point you're bringing out is that uh, if you have a if you have a line, the point is you have to, if time if time is linear. And you ask which comes first, the seed or the tree, then um, you just keep going back. You just keep going back. Hmm. Um, whereas in the cyclical time, you can say, you can give an answer. You can say neither one is first. That's the answer. You can't give the answer in, 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 in linear, unless you have a beginning of time, I suppose, then you could say. The egg came first, the chicken came But um, the idea there is, is that the cyclical perspective on time 
it's actually, it's funny because we bring it up, we bring up an Adi Karma, and, and sometimes we find devotees get like a little bent out of shape. But actually, if you really think about it, it, it as I explained there in that chapter, the cyclical conception of time, beginningless time, cycles and cycles, it's actually very, it, it may, it's rational. It, 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 a line is irrational. Hmm? It's just a line. Hmm? A circle has a beginning, it has an end, it completes itself. It's a complete picture. Hmm? And so, if you enter into the idea of cyclical time, then you, you actually start to kind of resonate with with how the world works. I mean, in a simplistic way, superficial way, the seasons come and go, and and the sun goes round and round, and, and so the, the, it's rising and setting, rising and setting, winter, summer, spring, fall. The Greeks looked at it like that in a simpler way than the Hindus, who had this idea that, that the whole thing is moving round. You know, you have your Copernican revolution in modern science moving from a heliocentric from a from a geocentric to a heliocentric perspective, and then the Hindus are calling for a atmic-centric perspective that the whole thing is moving around the atma, around the observer. Um, so, anyway, the idea I'm presenting there is that the cyclical perspective, it actually, and the beginninglessness, there's the beginnings are really uh, a problem, ends are too in some respect, um, for us. We resist the impermanence that surrounds us because we're, you know, if we were impermanent, why would we resist? Course, and we say there's an illusion of permanence that you're fighting for, but you're actually impermanent. But we argue that we're opposed to naturally, inherently impermanence because we're of a different nature, we're eternal. <clears throat> and um, so we've always been, we always will be, and the world is just going around. We're making it go around by our, our desires, um, opposed to the idea that it starts here and ends here. And then what? <laughs> um, so, again, I mean, that, your question is, how do you answer which comes first, the, the, the tree or the seed? In the cyclical order, you say, the answer is neither one. It's like, in like a Zen koan, like, what's the sound of two hands, one hand clapping? Um, You have to think about it. I don't know what the answer is to that one. But uh, you're supposed to go beyond uh, kind of binary thinking, something like that. Um, so we we want an origin. We want a beginning. So therefore we ask which comes first, the tree or the seed. We want a beginning. The answer is there is no beginning. And there is no end. And the, while the world circles have beginning and end, there's no be, there's no beginning, 
to the world circles, to the breathing of Vishnu. There's no beginning to of that. So, and also, within the cyclical time, you have linear time. Within it, it fits within it. It's partially part of the... There's this linear progression to some extent within the larger picture of the cyclical time. So it's a much more um, appealing actually to human nature corresponds more with our experience. And there's scientific uh, um, um, support for it today in the world. I mean, I'm no expert on it, but I quoted some persons in, in the book positing this, and you have ancient time, and in philosophy over the centuries, we have people positing it as well. I think I mentioned Nietzsche, Nietzsche, for example. Uh, you have elements of there in his, his philosophy. Um, so, this linear time idea is, is, is a renegade and um, it's 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 not comforting to, to the mind. It it doesn't put you in a meditative condition by which you can explore the more to life than what uh, meets the eye and the mind. You can go beyond things and thought. To that you have to be peaceful. If you know, time's running out. You'll be a little anxious. If you know, there's a lot of time. I have no beginning. I have no end. It's abstract, I know, but... But again, that's the answer. Neither one. Neither one is first. If I think I've made the point. Every point on a line can only be defined in relation to the one next to it. So, we've got a problem there. There's always got to be another point to define the previous one. But in a circle, it's complete. So, yeah, like for myself, I say I always found the concept of, uh, of beginningless time and cycles and all very peaceful, very comforting to the mind. It surprises me when persons get a little bent out of shape by the idea, no, no beginning. It's a core tenet of the teaching about the Atma, about Bhagwan. Why not about karma? Why not about the world? What else? I believe this question is related in terms of is Anadi karma an example of perennial philosophy? No. No. What is perennial philosophy? The perennial philosophy is is the idea that within all the major, let's say ego-effacing traditions as they were enunciated by the mystics, by the Jesus, by the um, Shankar, by the uh, Rumi, 
um, by the Buddha, by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, by Ramanuja. There's only a few of them, right? You have you have the mystical side of Hinduism. You have the mystical side of Islam and Sufism. Uh, you have the mystical side of Christianity and some of the saints, Saint Francis and others, and and the core of the Jesus' teachings. You know, you find the advocacy of renunciation and um, and what profit of the man if he gained the world, lose his soul, and drop everything and follow me and Jesus was a mystic, let's say. So there so there are esoteric, mystical Christian traditions. Uh, you have the Gnostics. You had the Neoplatonic traditions in Europe. Um, Plato himself positing us you know, a, a, this world is a shadow of the real world, something like that, and so forth. So there's this current. Let me, let me put it to you another way that you'll be able to relate to. Really, uh, really, honestly speaking, another term for the perennial philosophy is Sanatana Dharma. And the more you talk about perennial philosophy in relation to Islam, in relation to Buddhism, in relation to Christianity, to Jainism, and so forth, the more you're going to find things that are that are fully developed in Hinduism. Now, there's some differences with the, with the Buddha, and maybe, uh, I'm not sure what the Jain perspective is on the Atma, but the Buddha, I think if you... You know, I'm an advocate of the idea that is supportable by the Pali Canon, apparently, that the Buddha spoke about no soul as a strategy rather than as a metaphysical position. And so there is really an Atma within Buddhism. You follow me? In other words, he told people, there's no self, because he's talking about the false self. Just deal with that. And that's such a big thing that if you if you dissolve the false self, then what is the real self will come I guess his idea was to the surface. You start talking about the real self, suppose the false self complicates the issue in terms of sadhana and the focus in his tradition. Kill kill the the false self. Nirvana. So um you have this underlying current in all the mystical traditions where there's common ground. And it's basically, there's a, there, there, there's, a, there's, there's, um, there's this, the inner world, subjective world, turn within. It's not the outer face of the corresponding religious expression of the traditions, where where you're involved in, basically in, in, in karma, in that material acquisition, Christianity for material acquisition, as opposed to Christianity for experiential, mystical, um, comprehensive knowing, 
inner peace, inner self-realization. Um, Buddhists, you have plenty of Buddhists, uh, uh, religious expression for chanting to get things. You have it in, in Islam as well to attain, you know, a harem or whatever in heaven. Some other ideas are. So just as you have the inner mystical orientation in these major traditions that's ego-facing, you have the outer external. Um, in Hinduism, it's the karma marg. You know. The beauty, of, in my opinion, about Hinduism, however, in this regard, is within the external tradition, that representation of the tradition for material acquisition, the, the poverty marg, the path of material acquisition, you still have the underlying teaching that that you have to go from there to to moksha, dharma, artha, kama, and moksha. I don't know how the karma mimamsa. I guess they didn't. They, ignore the moksha side of um, but it would appear that Vedanta in its various forms has prevailed overcome in the mamsa over the ages and the current common understanding of Hinduism is that while there's much about it for material acquisition there's this underlying idea that it, of moksha and the sannyas, and the gyan perspective, and so forth. So, whereas you don't find that in in the various modern uh, forms of Christianity, wherein there's this um, similar perverti mark pursuit of material acquisition, attaining heaven with your friends and, and so forth. I mean, it's there. Otherwise, there wouldn't be the mystical side. Hmm? But um, uh, you you do have forms of Christianity. You do have forms of Islam in which the mystics of the traditions are criticized, crucified, hmm? and so forth, whereas they're venerated within Hinduism for the most part. Daksha, he was didn't venerate Shiva, but that was a problem for him. That's pointed out by Parvati. And at any rate, you have the two sides, right? I think what I'm saying is within Hinduism, you have the two sides, but there's a more pronounced and overt understanding that there is a mystical side, and it, it is a direction to go in. That seems to be more developed, in my opinion, than you find in Christianity, Islam. Um, Buddhism, I, I think it's pretty prominent there as well. Um, look at the Buddha. It's hard to uh, avoid that um, conclusion. But um, again, when you go to the mystical side, there amongst the mystics you're going to have all this common ground, impermanence of the world, to pursue material acquisition is folly. So this is the perennial philosophy. It's showing up in different 
different traditions, is the common ground amongst the mystics, even while they they vary in their descriptions of the nature of transcendence, which leads us to conclude either one of them is right or one of them is wrong, or transcendence is variegated hmm? in some senses, hmm? which is our perspective on it, which enables us to honor them. Hmm? Well, um, so that's the perennial philosophy, the idea. And it goes beyond that. The idea that, that within human society, even in the aboriginal uh, peoples, the, um, what would you call them, uh, nature worshippers, animism, within animism, which would be kind of a aboriginal type of nature worship, up to very sophisticated philosophy and theology, like Chaitanya Vaishnavism, for example, and other traditions. You have the t- on the two ends of the spectrum. You have this kind of common, some kind of common ground. Hmm? There's more to life than what meets the eye and the mind, and there's a way of attaining it that's that's, that's transrational. Hmm? It involves some worship. Worship is 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 it's maybe reasonable to worship, but the the act of worship itself is not a rational act. It's not an irrational act. It's a transrational act. There's another method. There's another way of knowing than by logic. The folly of of comprehensive knowing by logic. Hmm? Um, it's kind of built in. Bhakti Vinod develops this also his, his writing. And it's just such a, a heavy stream of perennialism in his his, his writing. Uh, Again, from the ab- and he'll bring it out from the Aboriginal people to this highly advanced, and sophisticated theological arguments and so forth. You have this some kind of common ground, um, like we have, you know, in, in, in North America, the, the um, Native Americans, and, and there's some modern-day appreciation of their groundedness, their spirituality, the, the inner kind of wisdom that um, you know you get in for example the the boat the boat the boatman story you know the Bengali boatman story the English boatman was taking the Englishman across the river and the Englishman said my dear boatman um, you know you spend your life on the river like this and uh, it's rather simple uh, do you know anything about botany says, no, I don't know anything about me. He says, well, you've wasted 25% of your life. Then the Englishman says, well, do you know anything about um, biology? No, you've wasted 50% of your life. Do you know anything about physics? Sorry. you wasted 75% of your life. And then rains come and the, and the boat starts to rock. Hmm? And the river is wild. And the boat, the Englishman says, what do we do now? And, and the boatman says, my dear Englishman, do you know anything about swimming? And the boatman says, and the Englishman says, no. And, and the boatman jumps off and says, you've wasted 100% of your life. <laughs> Something like that. So this a kind of the idea that there's some kind of common uh, core, essential uh, 
the knowing that that uh, is more vital and transcends what you can do in your head, hmm? um, and is is is, um, is comes to the fore in human in human life. That's uh, obviously it wasn't that example wasn't about your anatma and so forth, but but some like. Yeah, it's the common sense that that transcends that's uh, um, rare, something like that that's grounded that that connects us more with the reality of the world and it's and, and thus puts us in a position, a better position to to know its secrets. like I've said many times, if you love someone, they'll tell you their secrets. So you you have this kind of approach amongst the Aboriginal tribes and so forth. There's a you know, if if you look at the Native Americans, for example, and their uh, Chief Seattle or something, his perspective on nature and the environment that has been brought to light and so forth. Then you look at the modern industrialization and where it may take us with global warming or something like that and uh, and the potential of of uh, destroying the the ecosystems and life on earth and so forth and you see well, the guy was smarter he's more more tuned in had, had more knowing hmm? and um, his reverence for life and so forth uh, just like you have in Hinduism with this reverence for the seas and for the mountains Worshiping the God behind the mountain, the goddess behind the river, God behind the sea, and so forth. The, the bountifulness of nature, our dependence upon that, which should cause us to be reverential. And the implication is that there's some other like secret that nature has, and, and of course the secret is that you're a soul. That the human life is that time in nature that nature, just to kind of put it poetically realizes it has a soul. Hmm? Much as we're part of nature in a sense, we're the part of nature that's realizing we can realize I have a soul. Hmm? I am a soul. Nature's not the soul, but I am. Nature has a soul. Hmm? The soul is existing in the womb of nature, and nature really wants to help the soul understand itself and rise above it but it fights with nature to try to control nature conquer nature in another way and nature saying don't try to conquer me you're, you're already superior mm. Mm. so there's a sense of this kind of that pervades the human society and in the major religious traditions in their ego-facing form among the mystics and it's brought out, and it's pers- exemplified, and so on. So have this, there's this common ground. Hmm? So you could find in Bhakti this he's always finding this common ground between Christianity, between the Aboriginal people, and the, and while there's differences also, and there may be better explanations and deeper realizations afforded in different traditions, and so forth and so on. This is the idea of the perennial philosophy. Hmm? So there's, it's kind of like there's different ways of expressing and talking about something hmm, that 
is true in all circumstances and it's about us and some could talk about it in a more developed way and some in a less less developed, less sophisticated way but we're talking about the same thing and the result of talking about it, pursuing it, thinking about it is the same it's, it manifests with a regard for nature in a beginning way hmm? in a beginning way and then you know, goes on to self-realization, God-realization. Of course, he's a he's a perennialist, and he 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 brings in bhakti, of course. So the, the more the more popular, well-known form of perennialism is is more one that has been more or less equated with Sanatana Dharma and Monism of Shankar. The way to Vedanta, and there, the idea is that all these different traditions are different are examples of the soul talking about trying to articulate through the context of its culture, human culture and filter, something that transcends that filter, mm-hmm. and so. All the different religious traditions and so forth are just different ways of talking about that one thing that's just ineffable Advaita. Hmm? Now, as we were saying the other day, Bhakti Vinod um, has a Bhakti perspective on, in his, on his perennialism. There was a scholar named Zainer, I forget his first name, who wrote a commentary on the Gita. And he analyzed Shankar and Ramanuja, Catholic man, well known. And he also um, advocated a theistic form of perennialism rather than a monistic form of perennialism. We did an article on it in the Harmonist some time back. And um, so Bhakti Vinod did this as well. This is a theistic form of of perennialism. It brings in the personality of the God of the idea of bhakti, the need for bhakti. So, not just about the self and there's just one soul and appears that there, there are many because of the material embodiment and so forth. You know, it's non-theistic. Advaita Vedanta is kind of non-theistic, um, or marginally, provisionally theistic. So, and then, then within that, of course, he finds that Madhurya Rasa, Gaudi Vaishnavism, takes it to the fullest ex- expression of, of the implications of the perennial philosophy. And he has that, as, as Gorsan was pointing out, this idea near darshan, that the the cultural descriptions, for example, of Krishna Leela are not just cultural baggage that is to be transcended, but they're a partial manifestation of the of on earth representing in a representational sense in a kind of a um, symbolic sense of what the Leela is like. 
Lila has to have movement, interaction between Jiva and Atman Paramatma, and um, and then and then there has to be the the opportunity for intimacy as well as majesty, and the description then of the deity that corresponds with the intimacy played out as Krishna, the flute, and Indian, and so on. So he says this is like a, like a like a like a partial manifestation on earth of that reality. It's kind of like I said, kind of like the outline or the table of contents, Leela narratives and so forth of the book itself. So they're not, it's not to be discarded, it's not to be thought of as just some material culture. You have the Western culture also and you have the archangels, I said this before, and and, and, and in that perspective, and how you approach, then how the Godhead will reciprocate, and in the mind stuff, in the subtle, subtle world, different ways in which the powers are represented and personified. There's, there's room for that, different locus, and so on. And so, this is a theistic perspective. And I, I mentioned it in the third chapter of my book, I think, also. In that argument for consci- from consciousness for Bhagavan. Hmm. I mean, the idea being that if there is a God, which there is, and there is the possibility of intimacy and transcendence, with the God head, what will it be? What will it be like? Nothing like you here. Nothing like here. That doesn't make any sense. And we are Tatasta, Shakti. So what we are like inherently is coming out in relation to the Maya Shakti, which is a shadow of the Chit Shakti. So what we are like in relation to the Chit Shakti, we're the same inherently, but in relation to the Chit Shakti, personality comes out like a personality comes out materially, but it's a consciousness personality rather than a mixed these are a mixed existence of matter and spirit. Hmm. But it's the idea is it's very similar. Hmm. This is like a way to Vedanta is very different. Even in Vaidhi Bhakti it's kind of different. <laughs> but it's at least it's there's people. What what will the Leila be like? Will there be no people there? I mean, is it just gonna be some Unexplicable, ineffable, or is it going to be something like this? Hmm? That makes more sense. The latter, something like this. Hmm? You understand? Hmm? And then there's the idea that there are different cultures in the world. Some of them are—they're not all the same. There are sattvic cultures. There are rajasic and tamasic cultures. How will the god appear in different cultures? Different types of people. And 
the more sattvic it is, the more that appearance is going to be uh, like, in kind, an appearance with with the nature of its expression in transcendence. So this, he, he refers to the Leela narratives, descriptions of Krishna and so forth, um, as near darshan, like a partial semblance of having the darshan of Bhagavan. Like I've said, well, it's beyond words, it's ineffable, but having experienced it, then the sadhu tries to talk about it and to put it in words. Those words are going to have power, even though they don't do justice to the whole experience. They're going to have power. They're not completely separate or mundane only. So, and it's a, it's a varied reality. So, it, we give the two basic divisions: the, the Aishvarya and the Madhurya, the majestic and the and the um, intimate. You find in the Abrahamic religions largely a majestic idea <coughs> of the Godhead. In the Greek, you know, you have the agape. So, and then you have the human eros. Now we have the transcendental eros. That's like going full full circle. And and truly, if we are to have the full experience, the full idea of love, then we find the, the agape idea of love is, creates a distance, whereas the erotic kind of love it bridges bridges the gap, hmm? but it's profane. Hmm? Is the idea in many places? But Gaudi Vaishnava says no. It comes full circle, hmm? and therefore there's no gap, hmm? and therefore the love is complete between the jiva, or it reaches its fullest potential between the jiva, the atman, and the paramatma, between the jiva and Bhagwan, between the devotee and the and the object of his uh, love and devotion. So what shape will that take? You can talk about it philosophically. What shape will it take? Well, where does the idea come from? This idea is really coming through Gaudiya Vaishnavism, this full circle idea, right? And the Bhagavatam. What is it like? You know, we do best to listen to what, how it's described there. Those words, those narratives have power. They're not to be entirely thought of as just they could be replaced with something else and, you know, Krishna's on a mountain bike, rides a mountain bike, you know, instead of being a hot cow herder. And, and uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not, those aren't empowered ideas from someone who's, who's been there, someone who doesn't understand the concept of the near darshan, is having trouble with it, hmm? thinking that, that there are cultural limitations to the tradition, that the transcendence must transcend the cultural baggage, and I don't like India, so I hope it's not like that, or something, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> but uh, 
you're not a Rupa Goswami to, you know, to write about the Leela, you know, or Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and so forth. So, um, why, why, you know, the human life would be so distant from transcendence? It said that man and woman are made in the image of, of God and goddess. At least I said that. <laughs> I said it like that. So, hmm? like Radha and Krishna. Like Radha and Krishna. Hmm? Is our God a green, you know, man, green figure with, you know, two heads that only communicates telepathically? Or, or is he anything like us? Hmm? Well, you know, you want to make God like you, you know. Well, we are the gods on earth, the humans, right? We are the gods on earth. If you, even the atheists, you want to do away with God, then what happens is you become the deciders of everything, right? So you can't get away from from the God. Huh? So humans are the gods on, on earth. So we're the most godlike in a sense. And of course, we can abuse our humanity and be the worst, but obviously, human life gives the potential to be a caretaker a lover, hmm? do things voluntarily, make sacrifices for others, protect others, and so forth, in ways that other forms of life don't afford the same capacity to do. They may do it on some level, and when an animal does something like a dog, does something that's like like what a human would do, it's like he becomes very special, right? Saves, Saves the, you know, the master or something, you know. Becomes very special. So that we can do that all the time. So humans are very special. They're most godlike. So to think that their God might be like them. That's uh, why should why should he be entirely different? What's what's the logic to support that? In our conception, he's very like and very different at the same time. We had both. You want to say, well, you were just positing what is it called? Anthropomorphism. Making God like you. But as much as we make, so to speak, God like us is as much as we make him different from us as well. Hmm? Therefore, he's human-like with an emphasis on the like. Human-like but very different because the humanity, I mean, we don't posit on God all the things that are problematic with humanity. Our humanness is temporal. It's subject to, you know, so many, so many problems, suffering and so on and so forth. And he's transcendental. Even his, his, his sufferings and separation are blissful and so forth. So, he, we, 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 we posit a God who's like us and, and charming in that sense and very different from us. And that's why the difference is as much as what makes him charming as the likeness. Because if he was just like us, there'd be no reason to distinguish him from, from anyone else. And then, okay, then look at the human cultures in the world. And what do you find? Is that 
is the modern Western um, culture the pinnacle of civilization, knowledge, and, and some people think like that, and that there's this linear progression, we just keep getting better and better. But there's plenty of arguments against that. And go back to Chief Seattle. For all we know, we've gone down the wrong road, and we're the biggest nemesis to the to all the species on the planet, with uh, our our pursuit of the betterment of humanity, largely now unhinged from revelation. We think that there, is, that there is the God, and so there is the revelation, and that we should reason in relation to revelation. We should make determinations with the help of our reasoning about moral principles in a dynamic way over time, but in relation to the argument that there's a God, that there's, a, there's really good and absolute reason for pursuing the good. Hmm? Rather than, well, we decided for the sake of our species that, we, that this will be the best thing to do. And, um, so to, to connect the moral compass, to ground it ontologically hmm, in the real and to see it as a shadow or a semblance of the capital G, good, which is transcendent, resolves the contradictions of the moral life Um, so and the idea that there is a a transcendent life so within humanity human society we have different uh, different cultures the modern culture today is very much unhinged from from revelation it and the idea of revelation is as much misunderstood and so on and so forth but in india you had a, an idea of it was hinged tied to it hmm? philosophy t- tied to in one sense philosophy tied to revelation is is is, is more theology hmm? And so you have the human freedoms and so forth, but within limitations. And we, you know, we are, are limited. <laughs> people tell you you should do what you want to do, be happy. But somebody, and a lot of people could say, but I can't do what I want to do. <laughs> I can't do it. Uh, I want to be rich, and I've tried. Yeah. So do what you want to do. You know, don't spend your whole life doing something that you don't want to do. Do what you really want to do. Well, a good part of the population would say, that's fine <laughs> if you're affluent. <laughs> but what if you're not? I'd like to eat, and there's not enough on the plate every morning. Well, just, you know, you, you, you create your own reality, you know. Just do it, you know. It's just, it's just, it's just. Okay. If you're, if you're a privileged person, and maybe, maybe that's possible, and maybe not. Um... So now we have freedoms, but there, there's limitations to our freedoms. Hmm? We have will, but there's an overarching will that that, that, uh, that the 
that the playing out of our will and achieving a desire is, is, is dependent upon. And so there are cultures that advocate that. There are cultures that advocate that and are at the same time misogynistic and homophobic and and so forth. So they, they, they embrace a part of it, but then they can't be dynamic in their, um, and I would say essential in their um, um, approach to um, what the, what the teachings in their core are talking about compassion, um, um, tolerance, for example, um, um, openness to new insights about the world, which I feel is always it will, there will always be new insights about the world. It's a dynamic thing. Um, they get frozen in time and so forth. And then they become obsolete. And religion gets a bad name from them. Even while they may argue for immorality grounded in, in ontologically and so on and so forth. So it's complex, but at any rate, my point is that, that there are some cultures, and you take the Hindu culture, you know, from, its, from the get-go, it accepts that there is there's an Atma. Differentiates between... Atma and, 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 and matter, and means various means are suggested to, for approaching that and realizing it's the goal of life. So you know what is a, a human culture that has as its central focus the idea that well, that there's a self to be realized that is different from the conventional self, the, the male-female um, sense of self, for example, and that there are people in the tradition who have realized it, and they're compassionate, and they exemplify um, the fact that such an idea, if pursued and achieved, solves economic problems, environmental problems, political problems, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's to me that's a very elevated spiritual culture. Now, if you take that elevated spiritual culture for its core central beliefs and so forth, and then but then you only look at it in terms of how the beliefs were practiced at the particular time in terms of the morality and sensibilities socially and so forth of the time. Hmm? Which, like, is kind of like a short circuit in terms of maybe many modern sensibilities in different times and different circumstances and so forth. And on the basis of that, you dismiss the tradition and, and lose sight of its core ideas and so forth. That's 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 very unfortunate. So when I talk about you know a Vedic culture or something. I'm talking about these core a culture based on these core ideas hmm, that have the ability to stay alive forever dynamically and express themselves anywhere and, you know, and everywhere in time and not exactly the same 
in terms of details, but in terms of essence. Look at Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's bhakti, bringing out something that practically is unknown. Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Goloka is its its own planet. It's the Mahabhaikuntha. It's not an aspect of Narayan, for example. These are new ideas. They're always there, but he brought them out. Hmm? So, therefore, how Chaitanya Mahaprabhu expressed the core ideas culturally, there was some difference. He transcended the Varnashram. He took food from the uh, the Brahmin who culturally and religiously he shouldn't have because that Brahmin was initiated by Madhavendra Puri, for example. The Varnashram standards, he said that he as a sannyasi should not have taken a meal with him, but he transcended that for good reason and so forth. Mahajno nihitam guhayam. So the truth is hidden in the hearts of the sadhus, what the scripture is actually saying in a dynamic sense to how it will be applied in different circumstances and so forth. So so I'm saying that there that amongst human cultures, then this Hinduism is, is a high 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 class form of of humanity. And so their their idea, their conception um, of the absolute and, and understanding of revelation, um, it can make the argument that it's a culture that that is more representative in the symbolic near darshan sense of transcendence than um, modern America. which is hardly centered on the Atman and the idea that it's basically centered, unfortunately, um, to a large extent, on having money and sex, and then you're successful. Freedom to choose what you want. And this, is, this, is this, this is the success of human life and, um, and, and improving the human life in terms of having choices and so forth. I mean, there are other things, good things too, but this is a very different idea, and I don't think it's it's anywhere near as perfect. And again, I have to make the argument, just to make the point, well, you mean we should have the caste system? You know, no, that's not what I'm saying. We should have outcasts? Is that what you're talking about? No, I'm talking about the core ideas. How they were applied there and played out in those times, there were reasons for that. Hmm? How we would apply it here, there may, may be some difference. There may be reasons for that and so forth. Um, but there is good reason to think that a very highly spiritual and deeply, uh, very sophisticated uh, theology of the Vedanta hmm, before the Catholic theologians and so forth, uh, um, the Vedanta and, uh, and the Brahminical 
class of people who are not like Kali Yuga Brahmins, but the miracle class of people, that they were the, the upper end of the... This is the whole idea of the sattvic, the upper end of the human and material situation that, that is, is kind of the, it's the launching pad for transcendence. It's like living in the airport, you know, waiting to fly out rather than still back in your house. You've got to go there. It's the sattvic mode. is like this. So you, know, you, you see how that, to what extent that's a sattvic culture. Sattvic culture is one that, that is, not, is uncomfortable with the idea of, of a world or a pursuit of something that doesn't endure. It's uncomfortable with it. It's about endurance, for example. The modern world is about acquiring things that aren't going to endure. Sattvic dispositions, I can't, I can't be satisfied with that idea. So the, the focus, you know, you, you look at Mahabharata and so forth, you see that that's weird, what Gandhari did or this guy did, but there's a whole underlying other ideal that they're living for hmm, that's lost in those superficial um, characterizations of, of the way in which the Dharma is expressed and so forth. Hmm? Someone's prepared to, she's prepared to make herself blind because her husband is blind because her whole idea of marriage is entirely different <laughs> and what its purpose is and what the purpose of human life is and so forth. And, 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 and you've got a whole different idea about that. So these people are weird. You know? She agrees, I guess. I didn't know she was listening. <laughs> She's, yeah, I'd like a different culture. Theory speaks out. So, um, so yeah, no, it's, it's 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 not a racist argument, but it's it's a, there are three gunas. This is our our, our philosophy. What's matter made up of? There is a sattva guna. There are um, everything's not equal. There are more spiritual cultures and more materialistic cultures. So that if we go to this very spiritual culture, and then we, 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 why is good good reason to think that its cultural sensibilities and so forth are a more closer uh, near darshan representation of that transcendence than than not, and more so than in other cultures. So, so Bharata, Bhumi, Kijai, yeah. India, the mother of religion and in the world and so forth. It has its place. Hmm. So, all right, we'll stop there. So you see, Dauji Gopal Kijai. Guru Vaishnav Guru Parampara Kijai. Gaur Bhakti Vrindu Kijai. Gaur Premanandi. Guru Maharaj Kijai.